we start with the shortage of family doctors in British Columbia, something we've been focused on on the show over the last few weeks. Nearly a million people in British Columbia right now without a family doctor. I talked about this with Dr. Kevin McLeod from Lionsgate Hospital recently. He pointed out that people having trouble even getting prescriptions renewed, it can lead to problems. Have a listen to this. And somebody just renewing your prescriptions, I see this time and time again where, you know, somebody just had all their scripts renewed and then you look at the drugs and you go, but why are you still on this? And you, you can't really expect the, the doc in the walk-in clinic who has a completely overwhelming schedule and three minutes to spend with you to kind of go through all your drugs and say, okay, well, you don't need this. Okay, lots of people having trouble accessing a family doctor right now. We've got long wait times to even see a doctor in a walk-in clinic now. All right, my first guest this morning uh, has had some difficulties with this issue, um, being unable to secure a family doctor, and we'll talk about the impacts that can have on people's health. Heidi Tiedemann-Dara is an author and educator in Victoria, and I'm very pleased to welcome her. Heidi, thank you a lot. thanks a lot for coming on today. My pleasure. Thanks for having me, Mike. Yeah, you bet. So let's talk about your efforts to get a family doctor. You tried to get a family doctor, right? But like like our family, there's just not one available. But what happened in your search for a family doctor? Well, when my family doctor retired about eight years ago, she let us know and let all of her patients know that she'd been unable to find anyone to take them on and that we should keep trying on our own. She had a variety of suggestions that we could ask friends to put in a plea with their family doctors for us, that we could use walk-in clinics as a stopgap measure, that if we had any specialists, we should ask our specialists to know if they had any guidance about a family doctor who might take us on. But over eight years, and despite being on wait lists for nurse practitioners in Victoria, we've had no success. Yeah, that's a familiar story to a lot of people for sure. So let's talk about, you know, you've been unable to get that, you had that no family doctor for eight years. Let's talk about your personal health challenges, Heidi. So when did you first notice something might be wrong? Several years ago, around four years ago, I started having wonky blood test results with really high white blood cell counts that couldn't be attributed to anything obvious. And that continued for a period of about three and a half years. And then last spring, over the course of just a few months, I lost about 25 pounds. My skin turned coppery colored and not from a tan. Um, And blood test results that they were able to order through a walk-in clinic showed that my sodium and potassium levels were awry. So a lot of signs were pointing to a serious underlying health issue. Oh dear, and I know you were trying to get into a walk-in clinic and there was some trouble there too? Oh yeah, and by the time my sister visited in July, she and her wife spent two hours on the phone one day trying to get me into a walk-in clinic. And the only advice that any of the clinics had, because they were all booked by 8.05 a.m. and we'd started calling at 8, was that they should take me to the ER if things got worse, which was ultimately what we did. Okay, so you ended up in the ER and... What happened? 
Well, the first time I went with a friend the previous day, a doctor had a quick look at me and discharged me. Um, They initially thought it might be a mental health issue because they noticed that I was experiencing confusion, nausea, extreme fatigue, and I couldn't stop crying. But the disorder that I ended up being diagnosed with when I was admitted the following day can present with what are called neuropsychiatric issues if it becomes advanced. So my Addison's disease was what is called an Addisonian crisis. My levels of sodium were so low and potassium were so high that it wasn't sufficient to sustain life. Wow. Okay. Addison's disease. So that is a rare condition? Pretty rare. It's one in about 10,000 people. It's actually more common in dogs. So I've now met several dogs who have Addison's, and I have yet to meet another Addison's human patient. Okay. And how are you, how are you doing now? How, how are you receiving treatment for it? I'm great. I have an absolutely wonderful endocrinologist um, and she was able to see me in hospital. She diagnosed it. Addison's can be related to an endocrine issue in the brain. So they had to rule out pituitary. Once she had a handle on it and I was medicated, my health is terrific. But as she pointed out, it shouldn't ever have gotten to the point of being a crisis. And unfortunately, over the several months where I was really sick, nobody saw me in person. The walk-in clinic was doing appointments exclusively by phone. They didn't have the capacity for video even. So if somebody had seen my skin and hair and um, nail changes, they would have been in a much better position to diagnose. And of course, COVID made that really difficult. But the underlying factor is not having a family doctor who is following me. Right, that's it. Like, that's the bottom line, is that if you had had that family doctor, which used to be kind of commonplace many years ago in, in BC for a lot of families, do you, do you suspect that the Addison's disease that you have would have been detected earlier? I think I certainly had a much greater likelihood, and it also yeah. would have saved the healthcare system a great deal of money. I ended up in hospital for almost two weeks with a crisis for something that could have been averted for, you know, a series of 15-minute appointments. But those 15-minute appointments aren't available to a lot of us. Yeah, do you think that, you know, for someone like you, thank goodness you you finally got this uh, disease diagnosed and, and now you're being treated and you're a lot better, which is great. For a lot of other people, though, there may be people out there who are not as, maybe they're not as savvy, they don't have someone to advocate for them, they can't get into a clinic, so they will let something like this just go. Maybe they don't, maybe they think it's not serious. I mean, this is the problem. Like, is your fear, people could fall through the cracks when they don't have access to a doctor. Would you agree? Absolutely. And I've seen that in terms of friends who are being diagnosed belatedly with cancer, for instance, um, because they're on wait lists for assessments for so long. Um, I think we've got a real crisis in healthcare in BC, and at some point we're going to have to figure out a model that works for more people because growing numbers of people are unable to access primary care and we're ending up in urgent care and emergency care, which is so much more expensive and less efficient. Well, yeah, especially you go to that emergency room. I mean, like a case like yours, that shouldn't have been an emergency room case, but that was your only option, it sounds like. Yeah. And by the time yeah. by the time I was in the emergency room, it was an emergency. But even then, there's the eight yeah. or nine hour wait. So everything is in crisis. And I could see in healthcare workers in hospital, they're exhausted and burnt out. Um, they're dealing with an impossible workload and high expectations. COVID has, of course, exacerbated it. But these problems all predate COVID by many years. This is a problem we've spent decades creating. 
Heidi, I'm glad you're feeling better and that your condition has been diagnosed now and that you're receiving treatment. I hope you have a, a return to full health. And thank you for coming on and sharing the story with us today. Thanks, Mike. Much appreciated. Have a wonderful day. Take good care. All right. Welcome back as we talk now about the battle over police amalgamation in British Columbia. This one on the table again after a recommendation in a new report from the B.C. legislature. Amalgamate municipal police forces. Why do we have separate police departments in Vancouver and Surrey? and New West, and Delta, and West Vancouver. Why not combine them all into one Metro police force? Got Cash Heed standing by. Have a listen to this report from Global News reporter Richard Zussman. A dramatic overhauling of the way policing is done in B.C. An all-party committee unanimously calling for the province to move on from the RCMP policing day-to-day in communities to be replaced by a provincial police force. In the larger metro areas like Victoria and in Vancouver, the committee is suggesting taking the smaller municipal forces and turning it into a larger regional police force. All right, let's discuss now with my guest, Cash Heed, BC's former Solicitor General. He's the former chief of the West Van Police Department. I'm very pleased to welcome him back to the show. Hi, Cash. Good morning, Mike. Cash, thanks a lot for coming on. This is an issue that you've been on for for many years. You've been advocating for a long time for amalgamation, right? Tell me why. Well, I've been amalgamating for police, or actually calling for and advocating for police reforms for about 15 years now, not only related to how we deliver our service to the communities, but the structure we have here in British Columbia, the balkanized structure, uh, where we have several separate municipal agencies working under contract with the RCMP and certainly independent municipal agencies here. So we looked at uh, three areas specifically, and I think your audience will agree to them. The capital region is a mess. Metro Vancouver is a mess. And Central Okanagan needs to be held uh, to some greater degree of policing because those are the large, dense, populated areas in British Columbia. So when we look at those, it made total sense back in 2007, Mike, when we held forums on this, when we held discussions on this, when we had op-eds, when Dr. Gordon from SFU and Rob Stewart, Stewart from former Vancouver Police Chief and I did articles on this, we needed to... Yeah. Get rid of this balkanized system because there was a better way to deliver a police service to all of the people in British Columbia. Okay, when you say it's a mess in Metro Vancouver, it's a mess in Greater Victoria, what do you mean? What is the mess? Well, the balkanized approach to dealing with it, we've got this big gaping wound because we have policing that may have worked this structure back in the 60s, and in fact, we're trying to put them and keep them in place in 2022. When I talk about this wound, I often talk about the fact that we use a Band-Aid approach trying to deal with this wound, and that is through what some type of integrated model. But Mike, all you have to do is look at several high-profile past incidents, and you can look at the fact that our structure of policing perpetuated some of those crimes that take place. Just look at the serial killers here in British Columbia, going back to Olson, going to Picton. Look at the, the riots that we've had. Look at the gang violence we've had across the region, now across the province. Look at the drug issues. Look at the property crime. There are so many examples as to our fraught structure of policing 
something that needs to be addressed, and we still don't have the will. Now we have the special committee saying, yes, we will look at it. We don't know when that's going to happen. Mike, 15 years ago, we were behind the times. In 2022, we're so far behind. Okay, speaking of like a case like Willie Pickton, like, are you saying that with this the fractured sort of splintered police department system that we have that that guy was allowed to continue his his murderous spree of serial killings like he could have been caught earlier potentially absolutely and i think the missing woman's inquiry identified that where in fact you've got different intelligent bases intelligence bases that are held within police agencies you have cross-jurisdictional problems people will tell you oh no we're sharing intelligence we're working together no we are not to the extent that an accountability process under a regionalized model in these three areas and a provincial police model will be able to address okay Cash, you are a former chief of the West Vancouver Police Department yourself. So you're saying that, you know, even back then, I think you were in favor of amalgamation, weren't you? Absolutely. I had a high-profile position. I was well-paid by the taxpayers of West Vancouver. But I was told by my governance board that my responsibilities were in the boundaries of West Vancouver. I should not care what happens across the Lionsgate Bridge or across Capilano Road. Those are my responsibilities. That's who I'm accountable to. And they're correct in that, Mike. I am accountable to the people of West Vancouver. That's it. Mind you, crime goes across all these uh, cross-jurisdictional boundaries without any any, uh, problems whatsoever, without any guardians put in place, with any concrete stops put in place, or even the fact that if they commit a crime in one particular area, carry on another area, that's not necessarily identified as a trend. Speaking of former Solicitor General Cash Heed, this is an idea that's been kicked around for a long time. You've been advocating for it for many years, as, as you mentioned, and yet nothing ever seems to get done. Even with this report, which was a unanimous all-party committee report from the legislature, reaction from government on this, I listened to David Eby speaking about this the other day, is like, well, well we got to take a look at it, you know, can't make any commitments here. I asked Kevin Falcon about this yesterday on the show, the new leader of the Liberal Party. He was like, well, you know, I don't want to commit to this. We've got to look at it more. Why does this never get done? I mean, it seems to make a lot of sense on the surface, but there does not seem to be the political will to actually do it. There is absolutely no political will to do it. That's why I think this is, again, some rhetoric that's been spewed out. I think the special committee did a very good job in identifying some of the other areas that need to be addressed, such as how we deal with people with emotional problems and all of those particular uh, low-level, I call them low-level hanging fruit that absolutely need to be addressed and how we deal with the systemic racism within our police institutions and how we address that. But my thoughts on this are there's so much pushback from local governments on this actually happening and the fact that the province does not do what they're supposed to do because they're the ones that are directly accountable for policing within British Columbia, that they will wait until there's another mandate. I don't think there will be any action on this till after uh, whoever gets into government after the next election to see any movement, if any movement on this. So although this is, in my opinion, one of the largest pieces of the reform puzzle that need to be put into place, it's not going to be 
done because all of the other recommendations, all those other 10 recommendations that flow from this can be implemented relatively easily and we can hold people to account if we build the structure first. Okay, when you talk about that local government pushback, talk to me a little bit about that. Like for people in West Vancouver, New West, Delta, maybe people, they like having their own local police department, right? I mean, do you think the mayor there likes to be able to pick up the phone, call his local police chief, get some uh, quick action for his constituents? Is that why there's pushback? Like the people who have these separate municipal police departments now, they like them and they want to keep them. Well, again, they're buried back in the 1960s and 70s on this particular aspect of it. We spend $2 billion now in policing here in British Columbia. The only time the mayor's of independent municipal agencies and RCMP complain is if we come up to budget season where they have to pay more for their policing model. Policing is going to be more and more expensive as we move forward. We need to look at a tiered model to deal with this particular thing. And let me give you an example when we held the forum at the Morris Watts Center, and this kind of identifies it all. The complaint was coming from Delta how they did not want to go to an amalgamated regional model, and they gave the example if someone phones in complaining about croaking frogs in a ditch nearby, <laughs> and they were actually, Mike, they were very happy that they were able to have the police to attend to deal with the croaking frog. That's the mindset we get from some of these local politicians on this matter. Mike, if we did the same or took the same approach for water, sewer, uh, transit, all of that, we wouldn't get anything done across the region. All right, talking police amalgamation. Should we amalgamate all the Metro Police Forces into one force? My guess is Cash Heed. Lots of calls. Peter in North Vancouver. Hi, Peter. Go ahead. Hi, Mike, and hi, Cash. Uh, respect for you both. Uh, I'm, I'm a big supporter of all first responders, including our police, but uh, in North Vancouver, as, as you guys know, we have both the city of North Vancouver and the district of North Vancouver, and we effectively are amalgamated with our police services with the RCMP, and the headquarters is in the city. And uh, recently, you know, a few years ago, we had an uptick of property crime in the eastern part of North Vancouver District, where, you know, basically anything that wasn't died, chowed down with a lock started disappearing. We had a town hall meeting. The RCMP came out to meet with us, and they, here's what they effectively told us. You think you got a problem with crime? <laughs> We're fighting real crime over in the city. Mm-hmm. Well, I can tell you that's exactly the wrong thing to tell District of North Vancouver taxpayers is that their taxes are going to pay for fighting crime somewhere else. And and if we amalgamated all of Metro Vancouver, wouldn't the city then tell every area, sorry, we're busy in the downtown east side in Surrey with all the drug crime. And Cash, Ka- thank you for the thanks for the call. Let's see what Cash thinks about that. Cash, go ahead. Yeah, not necessarily. Parameters would be put in, levels of service would be established, and people would be held to account. And Peter is right in identifying the fact that nobody's really held to account to deal with their particular issues. And I can assure you that the property crime not only occurred in North Van proper, I can assure you that it occurred in West Van, and when they hit it, it occurred somewhere else, simply because of the balkanized uh, service that we deliver to our communities. Let's go to Steve on the line in Delta. Hi, Steve. Go ahead. 
Well, I know one thing for a fact. Anything government that's a huge bureaucracy doesn't work. You know, like making a bigger thing doesn't make it better. I'm in Delta. We have great police and there's very low crime. If I want to get, you know, it's like, it's like, say, municipal. If I want to get some potholes filled, calling the Delta will make it happen better than calling Victoria because they couldn't give a crap. And if you make a one big bureaucracy, they don't care. It's like Walmart when they go into little cities. If you're a little guy, you can't sell in Walmart. You've got to go somewhere to the States to get into their purchasing department. Big things don't work better. These guys just want a huge bureaucracy, just like that first guy said, so they can slough you right. off and say, well, go call head office. I'd like to be able to retort uh, our, your guest here and see what he says, because I know sure. he's going to say, no, 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 it doesn't work that way. Okay, well, it will. Well, let's it find always out what will. He, but, well, Trudeau well, okay, doesn't hang care on. about Vancouver. Hang on the line, Steve. Cash, go ahead. What do you say to well, him? Well, certainly he's uh, raising a particular issue, but what we need to do is we need, need to make sure we bring all the level of policing up. So when we talk about large bureaucracies, we have to ask ourselves, why do they not work? And there are reasons why they do not work. It, and what we are advocating for, Michael, is basically three regional and a provincial police service. So there wouldn't be just one large police service for all of uh, British Columbia. You would have the provincial model, which uh, rural communities can contract to for their police services, but you would have these regional models. And certainly what we need to do, and I agree with the callers, what's missing from these recommendations is a different level of policing where we have a tiered level, okay. which is catching on across North America and around the world, where you have different responses to particular issues. Not the big $150,000 a year police officer coming fully armed to your house for the croaking frog call. Okay, Steve, thank you for the call. I'm going to move on to another caller here, Terry in New West. Hi, Terry, go ahead. Hey, how are you guys doing? Um, I don't understand, like, why police forces, uh, maybe I'm wrong about this, but they don't seem to cooperate that much. Uh, and really, the, you know, what they're supposed to be doing is helping the um, law-abiding citizen be safe in the community. So if you have an issue that's going across, like Mr. Heed talked about, you know, crime doesn't stay in one particular area. It's like mobile and goes, you know, especially like on the sky train and things like that. People are committing crimes all over the place. Why isn't there more communication to help keep the community safe between police forces rather than being so territorial? Cash. Well, I'll tell you, police uh, are operating in silos still. They'll tell you, no, we've got, for example, Prime BC and certain things that we, uh, you know, share across a particular region. But I can tell you right now, and, and, and Terry brings up a very important part. It's who you can hold to account for those crimes that are cross-jurisdictional. And that's when we have the regional areas. We can hold one person to account. We can hold one person to account to deal with the gang problems. We can hold them to account to deal with the drug problems, the property crimes, all of those particulars. It's all around effectiveness, efficiency, and accountability, which is so important. Okay. Squeeze in one more. Ash in Vancouver. Hi, go ahead. Um, hi, I couldn't agree more with you. If you all remember, uh, when Gordon Campbell came, every hospital was there by themselves. He created all these health regions and got rid of lots of administrative work. And now the system works uh, much better. And we save a ton of money as a community. So why okay. don't we try the same thing with the police? Okay, thank you for that. Well, Cash, you were part of the Campbell government, and, you know, Gordon Campbell didn't seem very keen on amalgamating police forces. you got 30 seconds here. 
No, but I'll tell you, when I was uh, uh, considering going into politics, I, that was absolutely one of the things that I wanted to accomplish there. When I got there, I faced the bureaucracy that everyone's facing right now. So even being a cabinet member at the table, there were things that I wanted to do based on my knowledge, my experience, and that made absolute sense. And I was unable to do it, Mike. So those are the problems that we have Hi. in government. Gosh, thank you for coming on today. Pleasure. All right, welcome back to the show. Let's talk about the rise of legal sports gambling in Canada, the United States as well. Did you watch any playoff hockey last night? I did, and gambling is everywhere on TV sports right now. The games are sponsored by online gambling companies. Sports stars are their commercial brand ambassadors, and it is everywhere. Even the pregame show I watched last night, uh, there was a gambling show on before the games, how to bet, people making picks, all sponsored by online bookmakers. Yeah, it's everywhere right now in the United States as well. So have a listen to this. This is sportscaster Bob Costas uh, talking about the rise and the sudden turnaround and acceptance of sports gambling in America. Have a listen. Here's Roger Goodell in March of 2017. We still strongly oppose legalized sports gambling. The integrity of our game is number one. We will not compromise on that. But then, a year later, in 2018, a Supreme Court ruling struck down a federal ban on sports gambling. And soon after, the sports powers that be did a 180. Here's Goodell in March of this year. We're going to find ways we can engage fans through legalized sports betting. The money, huge and ever-growing, was just too much for the leagues to ignore. Yeah, a lot of the big major sports leagues have come around on this and legal sports betting seems to be the new normal here right now. Could it lead to more addiction to gambling? How about fixing of games? Could corruption infiltrate sports at a higher level? Let's discuss this now with my guest. What great guest I got for you, Declan Hill. He's a professor at the University of New Haven in Connecticut, and he's an expert on match-fixing in sports. He's the author of The Insider's Guide to Match-Fixing in Football and also The Fix, Soccer and Organized Crime. And I'm very pleased to welcome him to this show. Declan, thanks a lot for coming on today. Hey, Mike, it's an honor because this is an incredibly important subject to be talking about. Um, and look, I, I just want to be you know up front right away with both yourself and your listeners. Um, I support... The concept of legalized gambling, I'm not a proponent of mass hypocrisy. However, how we're going about it in Canada has been a walking, talking disaster. The Brits over in the UK, the European Union, and as you were mentioning in that excellent intro, the Americans have all legalized their sports gambling markets over the last 15, 10, and four years. And they've had a plethora of problems. Now, you wouldn't know that from the regulation that's been happening in Canada. There's been no discussion of a whole range of issues. And, and, and my appeal in the Globe and Mail, I did a 3,000-word article with my colleagues here at the university, is like, hey, guys, time to wake up, time to get some regulation, because there's a whole bunch of nightmares creeping down the pipeline at us. Okay, I highly recommend your article in the Globe and Mail to the listeners. It appeared in the paper on Saturday, and you can read it online. And you point out that... 
legalized gambling here in Canada seemed to go back to Bill C-18, Bill C-218. That was the federal legislation that legalized single game sports gambling, right? Is that what sort of opened the floodgates here? Look, we've seen those floodgates open in Britain and, and, you know, there's been such a range of disasters. You know, I'll just walk you and the listeners through some of them. There's something they've got the UK Gambling Commission. That's a body, an agency over in the UK, which we don't even have here in Canada. It kind of regulates, it, it finances independent research. And they discovered last year that there are tens of thousands, Mike, of pathological and problem teenage gamblers. When I say teenage, I'm not talking 18, 19. I'm talking 14 to 17. Pathological gambling addicts among those teenagers. And every single one of our listeners is now going to do the life equation. They're going to look and understand that if you've got a 15-year-old who's a gambling addict, that's basically their entire life done. Like, your minds, those adolescent minds are, are now become an addict mind and you just think of all the social cost to what's going on in their lives there's there's a there's a range of suicides um in the research i've been doing recently i checked uh, a site um and again listeners please check this if there's any doubt as to what i'm saying called gambling with lives it's been set up by uk parents whose children have committed suicide because of their gambling addiction they reckon, and they've got the academic research again on their website, uh, you know, so, uh, it, it's manyfold, saying that there's probably one to two suicides a day in the UK because of gambling. They were corroborated, they were backed up in March of this year when an independent UK governor's coroner went through the circumstances of the suicides of these young people and said, you know what, actually, yeah, it is due to gambling. And two, the UK government has been extraordinarily lax and is in some way responsible for these unnecessary deaths. And the UK is actually ahead of Canada in terms of regulation. Yeah, and boy, it's uh, it's certainly a risky proposition for sure. To, to put it to put it that way, let me. You point out in your article in the Globe and Mail that professional sports teams and leagues, though, are just going all in on on professional on legalized sports gambling. The Toronto Blue Jays have partnered with an online bookmaker to open up a branded restaurant at their stadium. In-game features, you can bet on the game, uh, even during the game. I'll play another clip here of sportscaster Bob Costas here about the situation in America and the rise of legalized gambling, how it's been embraced by sports leagues. Here it is, and I'll get your thoughts. Now, barely three years after the Supreme Court decision, you can't go five minutes watching a game without not just being advised of the existence of betting options, but enthusiastically encouraged to embrace them. In fact, Wrigley Field will soon have a betting parlor on site. Buy me some peanuts and Cracker Jacks and give me the line on the Diamondbacks. Right, so like baseball for a long time, Major League Baseball had been very resistant to uh, to organized gambling, but now it's like, have all the leagues just gone all in on this and accepted it now, Declan? Yeah, they have, and they're a walking, talking conflict of interest. Here's the problem. Um, There is going to be a moment, and again, I think this is going to happen to all of our listeners, or almost all of our listeners. They're going to be watching sports sometime in the next six days, six weeks, six months, or a year, and they're going to see an extraordinary play, something that is just unbelievable. I don't care if it's hockey, football, baseball, soccer, whatever. And they're going to, as they're cheering, they're going to go, 
was that for real? Was did that actually happen, mm. or did that guy just fall over deliberately, or was that construct? Was that theater? And as soon as that little voice goes off in a sports fan's head, as soon as they start to doubt the credibility of the league, the team, the player, it's over. Their belief in that sport is over, and they're going to turn away. And and that's the problem. The, 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 the U.S. and the Canadian professional sports teams, leagues, and players are now in a walking, talking conflict of interest. There's got to be a separation. There's got to be clear blue water between sports and sports gambling. Um, you cannot have a sports fan watching a game. Something incredible happens. There's some unbelievable mistake. And you've got an official bookmaker connected with the league. You've got players who are taking money from bookmakers directly. It's just, it's just, it, 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 I'm not saying that the integrity issues will happen, but I definitely, those questions of credibility will happen in sports fans and they'll start to turn off. So my sense of these sports league is they're dancing with the devil. They have no. How much? Yes. How, how much how much corruption are in sports right now? Like you've written a couple of books on organized yes. crime and sports and match fixing. Is there is there match fixing going on in sports right now? Brother, there is a tsunami of match fixing going on around the world. Um, you know, as you know from my book, I, I infiltrated a gang of Asian match fixers who travel around the world fixing major sporting tournaments up to and including the FIFA World Cup. Um, I, I've been a, uh, you know, a witness, an expert witness in over 35 European police investigations and trials. Uh, there've been hundreds of players arrested tennis. Um, you know, I just used the word tsunami of match fixing that also is used by an independent report of investigators who go in and look at tennis. Tennis has just been hit hard. Soccer has been hit hard. And, and all of that has happened with this globalized sports gambling market. The same thing is coming to Canada. There's, the, you know, in Canada, we don't even have a law that specifically prevents match fixing. It's a nightmare waiting to happen. Okay, now we started off the discussion, Declan, you mentioned that despite the problems that we've seen, the addiction, the potential for match fixing and corruption, you're still not firmly opposed to sports gambling. Yeah. Is that because what the world's going to unfold as it's going to unfold and this is just something that's going to happen? So are you saying that we should allow it, but there should be safeguards built in? Yeah, of course. Look, you know, I, I'm not a proponent of hypocrisy. People are going to drink. People are going to smoke. People are going to do whatever they they do. And I think we should allow them to do it within certain reason. We shouldn't have alcohol, teenage alcoholics. We shouldn't have children smoking. We've got l laws and legislation to protect teenagers and kids from tobacco and alcohol. Same thing which should be put in place in bookmakers. We all know our kids. Our kids are going to be watching that sports event. They're going to be indoctrinated with gambling and they're going to be, hey, this is, you know, these celebrities, these hockey stars, these Hollywood movie actors are telling me it's okay to sports gamble. So I should do that myself. Yeah. And what do you think could be done to reduce those risks? Look, just stop, stop gambling ads during sports events before while children can be reasonably expected to watch. So before nine o'clock, just like no ads specifically make a law in Canada preventing match fixing, have one unit of uh, the RCMP, which is specifically dedicated to sports gambling issues. What's happening now is that there's no police, there's no law enforcement unit that has an expertise in this. So every time 
there's a new investigation into this, I get a phone call from some police officer somewhere across Canada saying, hey, can you just explain the basics to me? Like, I, I, I don't know this. We need a dedicated police unit. The FBI has set one up. The Australians have set one up. We need a small dedicated unit. We need to make specific laws against match fixing. And finally, Mike, I would argue that we really need to educate our health professionals. If a gambling addict walks into a clinic, they're not going to be able to recognize them in the same way they can recognize, say, a drug addict or an alcoholic or somebody that's smoking too much. There are signs, there are symptoms, and our health professionals should be able and should be properly equipped and trained to recognize them. Do you think that like other games of chance when you walk into a casino with blackjack or roulette that sports gambling is the same like the house always wins because i maybe a perception among some people that picking the winner of a, of a game or being very savvy about your yes. sports knowledge that it's almost like a game of skill that you can make money if you're if you're skilled enough yeah that's a myth that's really heavily promoted by the, the by the bookmakers and um you know one of my colleagues here is an excellent guy he used to be a senior european bookmaker and i was uh, talking to him one day and i said how many customers did you have he said i'm about a million i'm like okay that's cool how many of those guys won and he's what what over a year i'm like yeah and he goes uh maybe five and i was like you mean five thousand he goes no no five i'm like you mean 500 he goes no on my finger five Five people, one wow. consistently over a year. The other problem is that you just in the question, Mike, you know, you indicated how myself and, and much of our listeners think about sports gambling, but it hasn't it's not like that anymore. It's not you yeah. go to a casino, you go to a racetrack. There's now what they call frictionless gambling. So basically we're walking around with a casino in our back pocket if we've got a mobile phone. You got this amp gambling app, you pick it up, and you're just pressing buttons. And particularly if you're a young guy or particularly if you're a gambling addict, there's no sense that as you're pushing those buttons in this easy way, there's no interaction, there's no human stuff. You haven't had to change your location. It's so easy to lose so much money. It is effectively, and you know, I speak with, uh, you know, um, alcohol addiction is a massive problem. We've all seen friends and relatives deal with it and, and, and fight to stay sober. Now, imagine in their fight to stay sober, they're having to carry around a bar in their back pocket. That mm. is the current challenge for a gambling addict. It's there. Okay. It's present. Our sports and society are getting saturated with it. Declan, congratulations on the, op the piece in the Globe and Mail. I think it's great. I encourage the listeners to check it out. Thank you for coming on today. Mike, thank you for beginning this conversation. It's such a massively important conversation. I know we didn't even talk about the mob influence in this. Yeah. I'm happy to come back at any time and discuss this because we've got to get Canadians awake to this huge issue. Thank you. All right, welcome back to the show. I heard my conversation there with Declan Hill. He's one of the world experts on sports gambling. Colin in North Van. Hi, Colin, go ahead. Hi, quick question here. Um, qui bono? Who benefits? If there's only five out of a million people that are sort of generally uh, on the winning throughout the year, there's a great flow of money. Where's it all going? Who's benefiting from all this, all this cash moving from one place well, to another? It, it would be the bookies. The bookies are making the money. I mean, that's the only people who will win in the end in the casino, right? The casino bosses. It's the same with the online bookmakers. So uh, check this out. The boss of... Bet365, it's one of the world's largest online bookmakers. The CEO there, Denise Coates, uh, last year 
uh, she was paid 468 million pounds, not dollars, pounds, 468 million. The CEO of Bet365, which is everywhere right now. You see that everywhere on TV when you're watching sports. That's where the money goes. It goes to the top of the pyramid for the people who own the uh, betting companies. Steve in Coquitlam. Hi, Steve. What do you think? Hi, Mike. How are you doing? Thanks for taking my call. Um, yeah, sure. you know, your guest was fabulous. He's absolutely right. You know, with the with the pandemic and all the casinos that were shut down, I thought that would help everybody who had a gambling problem with their problem. But, you know, it exploded with, you know, go online and do this and do that. That really just fueled the fire. And, um, you know, uh, and with the money that's being made, you know, the government is just sitting there saying, well, things can't be that bad out there with the high prices of gas and food and everything, groceries. You know, look at all the money these people are spending on gambling. It's reversing the, um, you know, it's it's actually doing the opposite. I mean, I'll spend $2 on a sports action ticket for my NHL. You know, I, I win yeah. here and there. But, I mean, like, you know, it's, just, it's really, uh, he's absolutely right. It's very scary, especially with the kids. All right. Welcome back to the show. Let's talk about the market for new and used vehicles right now. It is definitely a seller's market out there. The supply of vehicles is down. Prices are up. A lot of people in the market for a new vehicle, especially a good used vehicle. Sellers, though, demanding top dollar, and they're getting it too. Now, check this out. Some sellers willing to sell you a used vehicle, but... Only if you agree to finance the vehicle through the dealership. Imagine that. You go onto a car lot and they say, sure, I'll sell you this uh, used vehicle, but you can't pay cash for it. You have to agree to finance the vehicle through the dealership. Wow. My next guest, Lorraine Sommerfeld, been writing about that at driving.ca. Lorraine, thank you for coming on today. How you doing? I'm doing great, Lorraine. Thank you for doing this. And I read your article at driving.ca on this mandatory financing thing. Wow, I've never heard of this one before. How did you get onto this? And is this very common? How does it work? It used to be a lot more common. I'm in Ontario, and it was a lot more common in Alberta and BC, believe it or not. And now we're seeing it here in Ontario because we used to have, we have a pretty strict regulator, but even they've said that this technically isn't illegal. And it's immoral, it's unethical, it's a lot of other things, but it's not illegal. And what they've always said is, well, you know, you can just take take the loan for, you know, three months or six months, then just pay it out. And I've always said, no, you shouldn't have to take financing you don't need or want, and you should be able to arrange your own. But the seller can absolutely make you take their financing, and you pay a fee for that financing, and they get a kickback for it in most cases. So right. it, it's gross. <laughs> yeah, no, it's really interesting. So, okay, so the scenario is, let's say you go on to a car lot, you see the car that you want, and you say, look, I'm ready to buy. I'm signing the dotted line. I've got cash. I want to pay cash for the vehicle. And then they say, no, you can all, you can buy it, but you have to finance it, right? So what kind of, yeah, like, would they charge you, like, a usurous interest rate for it or something? Or 
Well, especially with interest rates heading up right now, that's definitely a consideration. Most of us see big posters for zero or 0.99% financing. That's on certain, you you know, new cars generally, but it's only on some. So you, it's not it's not dealership wide those kind of rates. So the rates are all negotiable, and they they get paid more if they can get you into a higher interest rate. And sure. a lot of people, because of that, would want to arrange financing with their own bank, or in, you know, maybe use a line of credit, or or they yeah. have the money. <laughs> they just want to buy right. the car. Right. Yeah. Yeah. And. And we have to tell them, if you don't want to do that, then you have to just walk, take the financing or walk away. And the woman I wrote about in my column, she couldn't believe it, but it does happen around here. And someone said, why didn't you name the dealership? It was a Subaru and Subaru Canada went crazy. They were not happy. Um, but I said, I'm, they, they were not happy with their dealer, not me. But I said, no, it's yeah. better that everyone walks in a dealership, ask that question first. Will you yeah. be forcing me to take financing? So it doesn't matter which dealer it was. Yeah, and as you describe in the article, uh, a lot of these dealerships, they will have a separate deal with a financing company, right? So Mm -hmm. a financing company will loan the money, charge the interest rate, but the dealership also gets like a cut, like they get like a payment or a fee or a kickback or something, right? Yeah, I've talked to some dealers that say we don't get a cut on every loan. We get on some of them depending on the provider. So I will presume they're telling me the truth, Um, but there is absolutely fees involved with this and they for the most part, they absolutely get like a finder's fee and it can be $750. It can be four or 500 bucks. Like it's a chunk. So they want it. They're just going after everything. And now they know they can sell that car to the next person through the door. So it's getting really kind of very not, not transparent and it's getting ugly. Right. And you mentioned though, not illegal, right? It's not illegal to do this. No. Um, definitely not in Ontario. It's not illegal. I would have to check the other provinces. But the thing is, you can set conditions if you're, you know, a business selling to somebody. You can set your conditions, and this doesn't fall under here in Ontario. All in pricing, like there's all these rules we have from the regulator, and the regulator now has gone on the record twice telling me it's not illegal. We can't do anything. Yeah. Yeah. So, yeah. But it's a little, it's a little unseemly, though, isn't it? I mean, it's you know. Sketchy. This yeah. industry already has the reputation it's got, and it just makes it worse. And that's <laughs> unfortunate. No, it's unfortunate. You, Buying a car shouldn't be, it shouldn't make you bitter and angry. <laughs> yeah, no, I certainly agree. I was speaking to Lorraine Sommerfeld. She's an automotive writer, driving.ca. Um, is this a symptom of a seller's market when cars are in such short supply? hey, the seller, if they, they can get away with this, they'll get away with it. Like some people might walk in the door and say, hell no, I'm not going to buy this car if you're going to force me to finance it through your dealership. Forget it. Well, guess what? The next person to walk in the door and probably say, yes, they want the car, right? And because there's so many shortages, there's not a lot of cars. And so people yeah. are kind of stuck. Sometimes it's yes. taken them a long time to find a car. It's probably not exactly the one they wanted anyway, but they need one. The shortages, we kept saying they'd be over you know, 21 we're into 22. Now they're saying 23. We don't really know. It's global. It's not just here. So yeah, definitely a seller's market. But looking at some of these things, it's feeling more like the housing market than the car market. You know, prices going beyond list and, you know, they're trying to get around that because manufacturers don't like it. But right. no, it's, a lot of- the industry doesn't need this. <laughs> Yeah, a lot of people are familiar with that car shortage right now, and a lot of it's been blamed on that shortage of computer chips in the manufacture yeah. of, of new cars. But th- we're talking used vehicles are in short supply here too, right? 
Exactly. And that's why the Automobile Protection Association, uh, they've said that doing this on used cars is just greedy. Like, greedy. Just greedy. <laughs> yeah. 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 No. Yeah. Is there? How can you? How can you protect yourself on this? Like you mentioned up front, like if you're going to go on, like no, ask the questions right up front, right? I would, and I've had some readers say, "No, you don't tell them your, you know, how you're going to be paying for it. You know, you withhold that." I'm like, I'm not oh. going through hours and hours of, you know, winnowing it down and finding a car and then having this sprung on me. So to me, I walk in. It's the first question I'm asking: Do you force financing on your buyers? And they'll say yes or no. Or if they hesitate, right. that's a yes. <laughs> right. And you mentioned, like, how widespread is this? Like, you mentioned this was a Subaru dealership and that Subaru Canada spoke to you and said that, what well, we don't like this. We're not happy about it. Yeah, they immediately contacted that dealer. I gave them the information because a reader came to me. Um, so it's, it's not any one brand at all. That's why, uh, actually, the person that owns this Subaru dealership, they also own four other dealerships of different makes. Mm-hmm. So it's industry-wide, but it's not one particular brand, and it's becoming more more popular, I want to say. They're not all doing it. That's why I'm telling people, find out first if it matters to you. Some people want financing. That's fine. Like, whatever you want to do is fine. But if you really just want to go and spend this much money and not have interest payments and payments, make sure you'll be able to exercise that right. Okay, great advice. Lorraine, great article. Thanks for coming on to talk about this today. Thank you. Canada may be known for its landscapes and friendly people, but beneath the surface lies a darker side of crime, history, and the paranormal. Since 2017, the award-winning Dark Poutine podcast has explored the shadowy corners of the Great White North and beyond, delivering chilling tales from a uniquely Canadian perspective. Hosted by Mike Brown and Matthew Stockton with over 300 episodes and fresh releases every Monday, Dark Poutine is your weekly ticket to the creepier side of Canada. Listen to Dark Poutine on Apple, Spotify, Amazon Music, or wherever you get your podcasts.